Hello, and welcome back to the Inspiring Psychologist podcast. I'm your host, Wendy Kendall, psychologist and private practice coach, and we are on episode eight, Beyond Talk, Integrating Movement and Mindfulness into Psychology Practices. In the realm of therapy, we often focus on the power of words, but today we're delving into a fascinating topic that transcends traditional talking therapies. I'm thrilled to have a trio of accomplished psychologists joining me in this episode, each of whom has journeyed beyond the conventional confines of therapy and introduced innovative, body-oriented techniques into their practices. We have Dr. Kirsty Kennedy, a consultant clinical psychologist, psychotherapist and executive coach. Dr. Kath Baverstock, a clinical psychologist and resilience coach for women. And rounding out our panel, Dr. Kirsty Fleetwood-Mead, a chartered counselling psychologist and yogi. These esteemed guests will share their experiences of integrating movement and mindfulness into their work and explore the profound impact this approach has had on their clients' healing and growth. We discuss the challenges they faced in explaining this shift to their prospective clients and the importance of collaboration with other practitioners. But why does this all matter? Because at its heart, this discussion isn't just about exploring new methods. It's about fostering lasting change and holistic well-being in our clients. But the big shift for me was learning how integrating our mind and body can also be a revolutionary act that helps us shift oppressive systems. So let's buckle up and get ready to push the boundaries of our understanding of psychology practices. Remember, we encourage all of you to connect with us and our vibrant community in our, in our Inspiring Psychology Practices Facebook group and on our website at inspiringpsych.com. That's inspiringpsych.com. Now, without further ado, let's dive into the episode. Hello and welcome to episode eight of the Inspiring Psychologists Breaking the Mold of Private Practice podcast. Um, and I'm really pleased to welcome today um, some really great colleagues and friends who I've been working with over the last few years who have integrated movement and mindfulness and the body into their psychology practice. And I think I really wanted to host a discussion with these practitioners because I think it's really important when we're thinking of breaking the mold of private practice that we realize that what we're doing is also pushing the boundaries of how we practice psychology. And I think it's really important that we bring the body, bring the movement and bring that somatic element into our private practices as well. So I'd love to welcome to this podcast, Dr. Kat Baverstock, Dr. Kirsty Kennedy and Dr. Kirsty Fleetwood-Mead. Hi there, everybody. Hi. Hi, it's great to be with you. 
So um, we were having a little bit of um, fun behind the scenes where we were talking about how we would tell the difference between Kirsty Fleetwood Mead and Kirsty Kennedy. <laughs> and I always remember it in the emails when I'm writing to any of you that it's Kirsty with an IE and Kirsty with a Y, but I'm not sure that <laughs> it's not a very short way of putting it. Um, but <laughs> anyway, I'm sure we will we will get through it, get through the discussion. So. Mm -hmm. First things first, I'd love to have a round of introductions from all of you. And I, I tend to start from the top and go round. So, Kat, Dr. Kat Bavstock, could I ask you for a bit of an introduction, please? So, yes, I'm Catherine Bavistock, and I am a clinical psychologist and have been for the last 20 years. Um, I've worked with both children and adults um, in practice, both in the NHS and in private practice. And I'm also a yoga and meditation teacher. And um, more recently, I've been focusing, last sort of 10 years or so, I've been focusing on working with trauma, um, both with children and adults. So I, I suppose now I would be a trauma specialist as well. So that's my kind of area. Um, yeah. But obviously also it, uh, interest is in the body within yeah. the context of psychology. So, yeah. That's yeah, me. exactly. And one of the things that you and I have had discussions about, which I always find really interesting, is this idea of the integration of the feminine and the masculine mm. as well. Yeah. And I think yeah. somehow that's represented also yes. in this kind of um, body approach uh, to integrating um, integrating the body into psychology as well. Yeah, absolutely. With the, sort of the, the, the head and the mind being more the masculine element and the body so it's representing more the feminine and the balance between the two. So, yeah, yes. I'm sure we'll get into that. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the thing I always come back to that you always remind me of is mm -hmm. that it's about the integration of the two and the balance between the two as well. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Thank you. Exactly. So, yeah. Kirsty with a K. <laughs> Kirsty <laughs> Kennedy. Uh, Dr. Kirsty Kennedy, uh, introduction from you as well, please. So interesting hearing Kat talk because I already have lots of thoughts. Um, yes. I'm a clinical psychologist too, so I trained about sort of 20 or so years ago. Worked for most of my career in the NHS, including in physical health, which of course includes the body, cancer and palliative care mostly, but it includes the body in a particular kind of way. And subsequently, the last five years, I've worked in private practice. I, After I finished my clinical psychology training, I felt that what I was doing in my practice in, in an embodied way or thinking holistically wasn't quite languaged by the training that I had. And I went off and trained as an embodied relational therapist, a gestalt therapist. So kind of wear both hats and the body's sort of in the philosophy in which I bring myself to the therapeutic relationship and it's kind of runs right the way through everything that I do really. That's super interesting because um, I've heard you talk about um, training in Gestalt therapy before and I hadn't really understood. I'm not a Gestalt therapist, obviously, and I, I've, I've not studied it in depth. Um, I think probably had a module on it when I was in my second year of my undergrad or something. Um, but I love that description of embodied relational therapist. So what's I hope that's not kind of a too big question, but what's the relationship between that gestalt approach 
Um, I mean, I think, am I getting it right when I say, I always remember Gestalt as being the whole is greater than the sum mm -hmm. of the parts. And then the embodied relational therapist, how do those things fit together? How I see them is it's different names for the same thing, really. So how I think about Gestalt, because it's holistic, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, that brings the body in. So we're not just yeah. a mind, we're not just a body, but we are the whole and the way that I would see the person in the room with me and the therapy is through the lens of the whole. It wouldn't be looking at the body or looking at the mind. It would be holding both together. Yeah. And the embodied relational bit is that very much I'm embodied in a room with another embodied person. So it's quite existential. It's quite, in a way, it can be quite challenging because we're sort of not kind of protected by sort of layers um, maybe sort of professional kind of speak it's like mm. we're going to explore what's there while we're in the room and work with that and the relational bit's kind of the immediacy, immediacy of it so kind of what we create together so it's process based so it allows it's quite energetically freeing so what we create in that room within you know structuring the process but it can can create something more than, again, whole is more than the sum of its parts, create more than what we might have been able to see at the outset. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And I'm getting a sense of um, how how it feels like there's um, a relationship between what you've just described and also the way that we work in IFS with the presence of self-energy yes. and um, yeah. holding space for you know, what's there at the moment with the client's parts, client's system, our yeah. system in that in that space. Like that's between. And that's that's yeah. the whole being bigger than the sum of its parts, like the two of us, the between what's created. Yeah. On a systemic yeah. level as well, then when yeah. you bring in more than one it person in. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for that description. Uh, so, Kirsty Fleetwood Mead. <laughs> Hi. Over to um, you. Can we have an intro for you, please? Yeah, absolutely. So, I am Dr. Kirsty Fleetwood Mead. I'm a counseling psychologist. I'm also a yoga teacher and an embodied movement facilitator, and I do lots of coaching work as well. Um, my background is in the NHS and in the third sector. Um, since 2016, I've been working in private practice and exclusively the last three years or so, I think, just in private practice. Um, and I specialise in anxiety, trauma, relationship difficulties and also ADHD. It's um, something I'm seeing more and more of in my practice as well. Exactly. And um, if I'm correct, your brand name is also the Yogi Psychologist. Yes. Nice, right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> So it's kind of right there, front and centre in the in the practice name as well. Yeah, absolutely. So I use so much somatic work in my practice now. So it could be something as simple as um, connecting to the breath or connecting to the body in that moment. Um, I love what Kirsty was just saying about the immediacy. I think that's something that I really love about it because there's such a difference, isn't there, between um, thinking about something and actually really feeling it. Um, yeah. But then I also do... Um, uh, kind of movement so that might be kind of standing up and doing like a small pose or like contrasting two different states um so yeah so I use that quite a lot in my practice on a kind of day-to-day -day yeah. basis yeah and for all of you really uh, why was it important for you 
whether that was professionally or personally, to start integrating elements of the body, um, movement, this more, um, this focus on the whole, um, as opposed to the kind of splitting down of the different parts and trying to segment and isolate various elements. Why was that important to you in your private practices? Kat, how about you? So, I think for me, it's always difficult to separate those two things, isn't it? Um, mm. You know, because I think... Well, we have a good go at it in psychology, though, we don't do. we? We do, exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, but I think from a, from a practice perspective, I think for me, working with children in particular, and then specialising using EMDR, which is the eye movement, reprocessing, desensitisation, not the best title in the world, but <laughs> uh, just for your listeners, so they know. Um, so using EMDR um, with children, but also with adults who were working on childhood memories, much of those memories were stored um, both in the mind, but also somatically. Yeah. So you couldn't, in a sense, uh, ignore the body because the body was you know so important particularly for younger children as well where most of their trauma memories are stored within the body yeah. so to ignore the body essentially means that you can't really well certainly within the EMDR um, therapeutic approach you just you, you can't really use it it is a mind-body practice so a mind-body therapy and um, so I think for me it was a it was evol and my evolving practice meant that I couldn't ignore the body. It just mm. wasn't possible. Um, but also from a, a, a personal perspective, I think uh, the role of movement and particularly when I became more interested in yoga um, and the breath in particular mm. and how to include and involve the breath in, in the work that I do um became I, I just began to see such good results mm. um and so I think sometimes just that feedback from your your clients helps you to realize that that's such an important part and the breath being like the bridge between the two between the mind and the body and in fact uh you know that's what pranayama in yoga means it means the it means the bridge mm. so really working with the breath as well for me was um it sort of began and then evolved and then it became a crucial part of my work. Yeah. So it's just like a, yeah, it sort of evolved, I suppose. And when, when you describe it, it sounds so flipping obvious that we would, you know, if we're, we're in a talking therapy situation that actually the breath is part of that. <laughs> like no one's talking unless they're breathing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so and then as you said that's an immediate bridge back to what's happening in the body and what you're noticing and picking up there and and it kind of goes from there really it just seems so obvious when we talk about it and yet I think talk therapy um I don't see I don't see still necessarily in wider population a, a discussion about the fact that seeing a psychologist might include movement, body, mindfulness, and so on. Thanks for that description, Kat. Um, Kirsty or Kirsty? <laughs> well, why was it so important for you to kind of bring this in? Uh, Kirsty, Kirsty Kennedy, I know that you had said that um, 
it felt as though the way that you were working just wasn't languaging what needed to, you know, be brought into the room. Yeah. Um, Fritz Perls, the founder of Gestalt Therapy, talks about it being the therapy of the obvious. And in a way, <laughs> bless him. Yeah, yeah I couldn't see that. Yeah. Either it was like it was the thing that was just there. We are embodied beings, aren't we? And mm-hmm. I kind of um, think, you know, you can't um, the breath. If I had nothing else to work with, if I had no other tools, I would keep the breath. You know, without that, there's not a lot else that you can do in terms of grounding, in terms of sensitization. And I was thinking in terms of bridge, like even between people in the room, if I'm sitting with someone, even if they feel something but they don't know it or they don't have language, often I will feel it in my body. And that's one of the ways that I might listen to it. Um, So I might reflect back on what I'm noticing. If I'm noticing my breath is caught or shallow, that might be what I'm bringing into the room. But I also think that I think psychology is very good at splitting off body and mind sort of cognitive and physical and um it's kind of it's an artificial um distinction really but it's quite exposing I think or it can be to feel embodied in a room and Mm. I think there can be a lot of shame we're quite a shame-based culture and it has to be worked with quite carefully I think partly because it's powerful that maybe we shy away from it it means we've got to do our own personal work if we're going to be able to be embodied in the room with someone and we're going to have to work compassionately you know we don't want someone's body under the spotlight we want to be with them we Mm. want to bridge it we want to be relational we want to be fellow traveler with them um and I think the power of it may be as part of how we've sort of shied away with it because it's kind of brings us right back to the ontological the existential it's like that we actually even exist and Mm. sometimes we find that difficult but it can birth such possibility and such vitality and such energy. And if we don't bring the body in, we're quite suppressed. And like Kat says, you know, a lot of what we hold, our psychological patterns are pre-verbal. You know, what we, what our body expresses, often we don't have words for or expl- explanations for. And some of it's intergenerational trauma as well. You know, some of what my body will be carrying will be part of what the generations before me brought to the table and, and in terms of their resources as well. And it's like if we can unlock that, it's like therapy, coaching becomes 3D. It's not 2D anymore. We're not sort of just skimming along the surface but we are really bringing something right from the depths of who we are and the power of that for me is just amazing really yeah yeah like once you get an inkling that that's a possibility how could you not bring that in right it feels sort of taboo though I think what Kat was saying about the feminine maybe certainly when Mm. I was doing clinical psychology training I felt you know, a bit, and even still, it's a bit more, I'm just learning to bring it out and talk publicly about it because it feels a bit counterculture in terms of psychology. Mm. Um, I guess as we all have those conversations, then, you know, it helps us de-shame it, I suppose, or bring it out into into the open a bit more. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's all sorts of thoughts going off in my head and I'll resist kind of going <laughs> down any bunny holes right at the moment. Um, but for me, there's also big links here with um, regenerative practices and thinking about and so this whole topic of how we break out of the mould um, so that we're accessing um, 
resources that we have that are not, and when we're accessing them as opposed to extracting them, if you see what I mean. So like I said, I won't go down that bunny hole. I'm going to come across (laughs) to Kirsty Fleetwood Mead. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. I always have lots of thoughts, lots of thoughts going off on what everyone's been saying. Um, But I think, um, I think for me, it's just this idea that we, we really experience life so deeply through our bodies, like for example, and I think that does come into a lot of day-to-day language, but it's just not really um, embodied or, or felt in the same way. So for example, you know, with heartbreak, you can, people describe actually feeling that pain in their heart or um, with gut instinct, or sometimes you say, oh, I just knew it in my bones, for example. Um, and so we have these phrases, but then I think actually in such a busy, fast-paced lives, a lot of the time we're so um, disconnected from what's actually happening in our bodies. There's that famous quote, which I'm going to paraphrase, that something about um, if you listen to your body when it whispers, you don't have to wait for it to scream, something along those lines. Mm, but yeah. um, I think that's so true. People come with really severe physical pain, for example, and there would have been so much happening before they got to that point or kind of severe burnout but actually we're so disconnected from what's happening in our bodies and it, and it does seem so simple and yet it's so important it's so vital um and so my own personal journey with it I think I was I was doing my doctorate and um I was recognizing the power of my own breath work and um yoga practice and then just thinking wow it's so wild to me that in in my teaching in my, the, my training to be a psychologist that there's very minimal training on being um, connected to our bodies and I just found that quite um yeah just really quite shocking um and I think traditional psychology tends to be so focused on thoughts and what's happening in our minds and I think can really neglect the body and so I was so passionate and starting to do further training and exploration to bringing this more and more into my therapy practice and actually I'm not teaching yoga now but I was teaching yoga for many years and I would also be weaving in the psychology elements to my yoga practice as well so kind of trying to overlap them as much as possible um and I think being connected to your body it, it just really gives you the power of of your intuition which is just so incredibly powerful isn't it and um and more agency um but also it gives you that that pause so that we don't go into that um habitual reaction but we can actually choose our actions um so it's it's so powerful it's so simple and yet so powerful yeah so I think the thing that I'm kind of relating to a lot in terms of my own journey um as an occupational psychologist and heaven knows as an occupational psychologist like there's no role for the body at all (laughs) um you know, when I think about places where the body is not encouraged, except in very formulaic ways, that might that would include the organization, right? The the embodiment or people access to um mind, you know, mindfully paying attention to our body, I think is one of the things that is in contrast to burnout culture, hustle culture, don't listen to your exhaustion, you know, all of the, all of those kind of toxic elements. And it it really stands in contrast to when I think about some of the things I'm thinking with, how do we create regenerative businesses and regenerative practices where uh, 
this topic of interbeing, which I know is, you know, it's a, it's topic in Buddhist uh, philosophy and, and in yoga as well, I think. And, but it most definitely is from a systems um, an ec ecological systems point of view, thinking about how we are all connected, paying attention to the ways in which we're connected and the embodiment of that connection as well. And so for me, what you're describing is that one of the routes to creating more regenerative businesses is bringing the body in as well because that's one of the things that we've been most disconnected from and I remember um oh I think it was in one of our earlier uh, podcasts where I think it was the one where we were talking about mental health for entrepreneurs and you know lo and behold if you design your psychology practice for health and for mental health and physical health then funnily enough the rest of it kind of follows from there and I was really taken with this um, idea that, like, of course, obviously, we should be designing organizations so that they sustain life. That's that's what a life-giving, regenerative business is about. And um, and then there were some discussions on LinkedIn about how do we, um, you know, how do we look after mental health in workplaces? And it's like, well, tell you what build your organization to support physical and mental health and take it from there. Take the rest of it from there. Don't just make it an add-on. Like doing this as an add-on is not a thing. Just put it in the, in the center of it. And then the rest of it. So anyway, I'm having a bit of a rant now, but it just really <laughs> made things make a lot of sense to me, the way that you've described the the, the fundamental power of this and it's not just about bringing the body in, it's about that integration. So, which comes back to your point, Kat, <laughs> that you started with. So, Kat, when you, were dis when you were thinking about, you know, the feminine element, the masculine element, I know we talked about these kind of archetypes and so on. Um, what's been your experience of kind of unraveling and unpacking that with clients? Mm, that's an interesting question, isn't it? <clears throat> I think from a from a kind of in a way, don't mean to separate them, but for the moment, from a from a physical perspective, um, helping people to get in touch with their senses and and with their bodies and with their feelings in a way that feels manageable is quite is quite can be quite a revolutionary experience for people. Um, it sounds so simple, but yet it's not always as simple as it seems no. um, because we've been rather conditioned out of our somatic experience and into our minds, certainly as psychologists we are, but I think generally speaking we are too. Mm -hmm. So I think bringing people into their bodies and into their senses on a physical level is very powerful. And then as that process unfolds, people then are able to connect psychologically to their intuitive systems, so are able to, mm. you know, as as um, Kirsty Fleetwood Mead was talking about, you know, being able to con connect with that kind of gut gut instinct or that inner knowing, I call it, mm. um, and that that then gives them a, a, a kind of access to another whole kind of world of um, possibility and empowerment and uh, connection. Um, and so developing this sense of inner knowing and this in intuition 
is for me the more feminine aspect and the the, the, the part that we're rather conditioned away from or out of because mm-hmm. it is so powerful uh, and and sometimes can feel a bit overwhelming but within the context of a safe therapeutic space um, can really be so transformational and that's when you get the integration and the embodiment and people being able to access part of themselves um, and I suppose that you know sort of connects to IFS and work that you do as mm. well there's lots of connections and actually everything does connect but you have to go through this process of uh, letting go releasing and, and, and letting go some of this conditioning that we've experienced I feel around trying to find all the answers through the mind right yeah uh, which you know of course psychology as a, as a discipline has is an, it has advanced in many many ways and um, but I think the body has been neglected and I think it is time to bring that back online so to speak um, in that more holistic integrated embodied way um, so so that balance between that kind of you know the mental functions the masculine element in my in, in yogic terms in energetic terms and the more feminine element uh, is is all about balance for me and the more in balance you are as a as a being as a person the better your health the better your well-being and the more able you are to thrive as opposed to just survive yeah. and that goes back to what you're saying about the burnout um, so for me it's all about balance rebalancing those elements those different parts of ourselves mm-hmm. both the mind and the body um, and how they work together in harmony you can really see how it becomes a bit of a revolutionary thought, though, when we're talking about, um, I guess, <clears throat> reconnecting with that embodied sense of ourselves, with our gut feelings, with our intuition, with all of those things, um, means that we're less willing to sacrifice all of that on the altar of whatever, right? The altar of somebody's idea of success and that means someone's not able to make you know to take advantage of that to exploit people's bodies as a resource anymore um so I can imagine that there's also I think there's pushback and possibly kind of resistance to that that we have internally as well that we've internalized from the external culture I don't know if any of you kind of have anything to speak to around that um, you know, that inner resistance that people might have to mm, feeling more embodied and feeling like they value that and want to use the power of that more. I think you're right about it being challenging to outside of us. You know, if we've been programmed to be a particular way and maybe to desensitize our needs, then if I get connected to my body and what I need, then I might have to change something out there. You know, yeah. I might have to change something about my work environment or my life. And that's the risk. The alternative might be that I can just numb myself and carry on and be productive until, of course, I burn out. So, you know, whilst it's a really healthy way, I sort of think about being in touch with our body as kind of an act of civil disobedience in a way, because then we can not only can we think for ourselves, but we can feel for ourselves. And we're not any longer going through the motions of what we think we ought to do. You know, those internalized beliefs. Um, And like Kirsty FM had sort of said before, it's if we can slow it down enough to connect with what we who we really are, 
then we aren't going to go quickly through those repetitive patterns that are habitual, but we will stop and we will become aware, mindful, mm. and we can then make a choice. We can make a really clear decision, which can be amazing and transformative, and it can be challenging because, you know, sometimes we're going along being no more blind to what we're in until, you know, the pain becomes big enough that we can't. But actually, if we can catch it earlier and be in tune with ourselves, we can self-regulate and we can make things work for us. We can we can create the world in the way that we want to. And for me, that's a moment-by-moment moment process. You know, who I am is created in every moment, so I can recreate in this moment if I can choose differently. Yeah. And that's where the sort of power of sitting in a room, you know, that relational bit comes in because we can change things right now. You know, we can begin that process and it can happen in lots of little steps. It doesn't have to be huge, doesn't have to be explosive, but it can be tweaking. You know, we can tweak it right now and we can start a different direction of travel and get right back to who we are, you know, get home in our bodies. Yeah. And that just reminds me of of why it's so powerful when you're talking about being able to self-regulate with something that we have access to every day without having to spend money, which is our own body. <laughs> um, you know, in that sense, we don't, we don't need to buy or acquire or consume things to regulate. We have everything. We, have everything. we are enough. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, to the Kirsty. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking what you were saying earlier, Wendy, about a kind of hustle culture. And I think even on a, a personal level, you know, even being a psychologist and having these practices doesn't um, stop me from being human. So I can really identify with that pull sometimes of the part of me that just wants to be you know, living a really simple life in the south of Europe, having a, a, a lovely, gentle time. And the other part of me that's like, no, I want my practice to be worldwide. And you know, sometimes that can feel like a never, um, a constant tightrope that you're walking. And um, other Kirsty was just saying there about um, connecting to values. I do a lot of value-based work in my practice as well, because I think that's so important when you start to connect to your intuition and then you think, oh, actually, what is important to me? What do I value? I don't really know. And so actually that feels like for me and my practice a really important part of that. So I think coming back to your values and of course they always changing and evolving in just the same way that our bodies are always feeling different moment to moment. So I think it's um it's a constant lifelong practice I think being in touch with your body and, and what's happening in it and I think what you might need in one time in your life could be a completely different thing to what you might need a month a year five years later so being able to be connected to that and then to be able to adapt I think is also such an important um, thing as well. I, the thing just occurred to me as well the as you were speaking there Kirsty, that um the that becomes a vehicle then for connecting with the rest of the world right in a different way and so it takes us out of these artificial environments and takes us out into the world and connecting with other people and being out there and and being a part of of all of that as opposed to you know where a lot of us and Kirsty, again, I agree with you. We're not immune to this as psychologists, but where a lot of us are, you know, on our screens, working indoors and so on. Um, 
but having that more living connection with um, our embodied selves inevitably then is the vehicle for moving into different environments and different places and not being mm. artificially disconnected from everyone and everything else. Mm. So I don't know if if you also find that that way of working somehow leads to more um, relationships, connections with the outside world for you, your clients, and so on. Kat, I saw a small, a small smile there. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, you, you know, you and I have had conversations about this this sort of thing before, but I think um, one of the things that was occurring to me this morning was you know, what happened during the, the COVID pandemic, where, yes, on one level, we all got driven to our screens uh, and ended up, you know, being quite isolated and all of that, the negative side of it. But I think there was also, for many people, that draw back to nature. Mm. Um, I don't know for everyone, but certainly the people that I spoke to, there was a draw back to nature. And actually, there's something for me about when you become more connected to your senses and more connected to your body you naturally tend to seek out more uh, nature-based places not Mm. always but 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 certainly in my experience so that then you are naturally then becoming more connected to who you are as a as a as a as a natural being on this earth and connected to more of the rhythms of life and the um you know the natural the seasons and just all of those things that sometimes when we are you know, on that burnout cycle, that hamster wheel, we kind of become quite disconnected from. Exactly. Um, and then we can access that power of, you know, the medicine, the power of nature, which is also so healing and so transformative. And so I think there's some, you know, you talk about going into different spaces. That's what came to my mind, that you perhaps more naturally start to, yeah, move into different spaces um, because of... Uh, sometimes being forced into those spaces but also you know sometimes things happening which then make you more aware and I think a lot of people did become more more aware of yeah the disconnect in fact between you know their 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 minds and their bodies and and how that can lead to uh ill health yeah um, and burnout yeah so so yeah I think I think you're right I think people do naturally then gravitate to different types of spaces um I know for me, I, I, I really enjoy going out on the water, uh, paddleboarding. So oh. that, was, that was something I sort of got into more over that period. Um, so, yeah, I think we all do it in different ways, don't we? Yeah, I remember I had friends, several friends who were saying, I mean, we were connected by Facebook at the time, but obviously people were allowed outside. And they were saying, you know, actually we've discovered these new walks around that we and these new like natural places where we never knew that this existed in our local community and I think that's so interesting and it's part it's not part of the prevailing narrative about that time at the moment a lot of the prevailing narrative about that time at the moment is oh we were all locked up and we were all disconnected from one another well there was a period of of that but also there was a period of us therefore and everyone talks about the beautiful weather. Oh, we were all in our gardens. We all did this. We all did that. We all did the other in terms of getting out. And I know there were issues around, you know, um, are you allowed? 
are you really having an exercise walk or are you meeting up with your mates because you've got your Starbucks coffee in your hand and all the rest of it? But <laughs> I think it's really interesting that at that time um, there was actually also a net connection with the environment around. Um, it is interesting. Right, yeah. What did um, – did, did you find yourselves going out for walks and things like that uh, during that time? <laughs> I think for me there's something relational and kind of in yeah. my practice, but in life it's like if we are really connected with our body, if we feel, if we have sensation, then we can have more relationship, either be it with other people or the outside world. And I was thinking in um, the last few years, one of my happiest memories is of lying down on the grass with one of my oldest childhood friends and we kind of lay I don't even know what we talked about you know something and nothing but it was just joyful and I kind of find myself sometimes thinking I really would like to go and lie down on that bit of grass with her again and just talk about stuff and look at the sky and mm. I guess in some ways we come back to that sort of real fundamental who we are and I suppose it's no accident that that was a childhood friend because, you know, the bits of us that have been there always are still there, aren't they? Maybe the bits of us that enjoyed nature when we were young before we worried about technology or, you know, utility bills and all of that. And for me, there's a great joy in reconnecting with that. Like even if I'm not doing anything or even if I'm sitting with someone, even if I'm in my practice and we are having just a moment where it's just there's connection and we're down to something that's really important to them or really core or, you know, that we can make a change with. And, you know, I think that might be among the biggest joys of life, probably. And we can so easily numb ourselves from that and busy ourselves and, mm. you know, get into our heads. And there's a lot lost there, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so when I, when, you know, when it came to integrating a lot of this, I mean, we talk about the joy of it and the connection of it and how accessible it is and so on. Did you find yourselves having to push back on any stereotypes, any resistances, um, you know, this whole topic of breaking out of the box? How was that kind of breaking out experience for you? What comes to mind with that? And Kirsty Fleetwood Mead, you're nodding <laughs> um, away. Well, yeah, Wendy, you you know me and you know I'm a big fan of, of breaking out of the box in lots of different ways. Yeah. So actually for me, it kind of um it kind of doing this kind of work that's a bit different and being in private practice, I think kind of suits me, suits me down to the ground. Um <laughs> uh, I, I just really love that it's possible to do it in so many different formats um so not only am I bringing my kind of yoga and breath work into psychology and I'm taking you know vice versa but then I'm also taking this kinds of work um into different places like I've done workshops at festivals yes. and um I've snuck it into corporate the corporate world and kind of <laughs> in terms of you know people who work in finance are unexpected yes. meetings Let's stand up and see how you Finance people have post. bodies too. <laughs> 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 um, but I think um, I think certainly 
Wendy, you mentioned my name earlier, the yogi psychologist. And I think, you know, people maybe from a more corporate background, again, I'm generalizing, but sometimes there's a bit of a, oh, I don't want to be doing yoga. And I'm, I'm that's what I'm not coming. I'm not doing down with dog in the boardroom. Exactly. Which is very much not what I do. But um, I think there can be a bit of a misconception around that. Um, And I don't know, sometimes, uh, because I do do quite a lot of coaching work as well, and I get people who come to me and they say, um, I really want to do coaching rather than therapy. But actually, when you unpick what they want from coaching, they're actually talking about wanting to be more productive and do more and achieve more. But actually, what they need is slowing down and, and reconnecting um, to their yeah. bodies. So I think there's definitely a lot of education. And I think what Kat was talking about um, earlier about feeling, um, I think there is some some stigma around working with the body. I, I wonder, even in the psychology world, whether it feels like it's not sufficiently evidence-based um, and a bit nebulous sometimes I think um I use a lot of EMDR as well and I think for me that's been such a wonderful kind of overlap and kind of bringing it all together but this kind of somatic work I do um I don't know it feels quite hard to evidence something like that and I think sometimes we can get a bit caught up in in nice guidelines and needing needing um things to be you know done in a certain way um but actually I think just kind of trusting yourself as a practitioner I think has been so important um, for me personally. The quantitative scientific method is all about splitting things into variables and trying to control Mm. each of them so that we can get the stats to work essentially. (laughs) It doesn't you know it kind of um, it's interesting and it makes kind of sense that it's hard to get certain kinds of evidence you know quantitative Um, have you met this significance level? Because we're talking here about something that flies in the face of quantitative methods, which mm-hmm. is we're talking about integration, we're talking about covariance, we're talking about all these other things. But mm-hmm. as you said, you know, even within our science, quantitative method has been so vaulted compared to qualitative methods and qualitative approaches, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, something like this would be much more amenable to those kinds of research yeah, methods. Mm. Um, we're, people, we're not asking people to just sort of believe what we're saying or buy into sure. it. We're kind of saying, maybe particularly with body stuff, saying try it. So try this. Yeah. Why move? Mm. What happens for you? So in a way, mm. you know, people get it you know it makes really intuitive sense so I think when you start practicing it and if you are curious and hold a sort of an openness to it people will see what their truth is how they see it and yeah in lots of different contexts yeah Mm, creating their own evidence exactly I was, and exactly that. And I was just going to say one of the discussions that we have in um, regenerative practices is about other forms of knowing <laughs> that are not just about, you know, this, this, um, you know, this, this kind of westernized scientific method that has been kind of formulated over the last hundred years or so in the social sciences. Um, you know, what are other forms of knowing? Well, our personal intuition, our personal knowing is also a mm. form of knowing that's important in this, you know, this whole scenario. Kat, how yeah, about you? Know, you? You know what I feel about that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, I think I think there is quite a lot of fear um, surrounding access to the body and uh, and the power of intuition. And as you say, there's been 
you know, um, this kind of uh, this this more quantitative, hypothetical, deductive model of exactly. science, Karl Popper, um, and now we are working with different paradigms. And yeah. there is a, I think there is a paradigm shift uh, coming, which is more balanced because, of course, we need the quantitative evidence, uh, but we also need the qualitative, phenomenological evidence as well or, exactly. or data whatever you want to call it so again this is another balance isn't it it's not about one or the other it's about these these things working together but there's been a mm. a, a dominance of of the evidence exactly. based uh, scientific paradigm and in psychology particularly and almost like a fear or a resistance or as 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 Dr. FM, as we were <laughs> saying, you know, there's this kind of uh, uh, this this um, perhaps uh, need for following schedules and frameworks, and, and and that's not necessarily all all bad. I mean, EMDR, for example, has a, a clear mm. schedule and a framework, but it also has space between to be able to work intuitively and uh, in more body-based embodied ways and I think for for me it's about a balance between those mm. different ways of mm. of working and being able to access your inner knowing and your inner intuition both as a woman or as a man is so powerful um, mm. and uh, I think we're missing a trick by not um, harnessing the power of that certainly yeah. from my experience. Yeah awesome so kind of last chunky question which is what are your hopes for the future I'm going to come to you first Kat because you were just okay. alluding to <laughs> yeah where are the where are my hopes I think I think for me it's about trying to create a more balanced holistic and integrated psychology um where you know different paradigms are held uh, you know you, it's possible to hold different schools of thought different ways of being and actually integrate them dare I say so a more integrated psychology, which does take into account the body because it's so important and treat people in a more holistic way, because I think that's where people can truly do the work and, and, and move through transformative and um, growth experiences and thrive. In the positive psychology world, they talk about flourishing, yes, which um, I quite like that idea of kind of you know, growing and, and opening and expanding and flourishing, that whole kind of growth mindset yeah. um, way of being, which, um, you know, really does add to people's wellness and help people become more balanced. So I think for me it's about, you know, opening opening our minds to different ways of, of working and, um, and, and balancing these different ways of, you know, collecting data and different approaches to therapy and what have you, rather than it has to be done this way or that, mm. but actually integrating them and using yeah. information from from these different yeah. parts. Yeah. So. And yeah, I guess in that sense, in organisations, for example, we wouldn't feel the need to talk about physical and mental health as two separate entities then, you know, it'd be, it's about the whole well-being <laughs> of people and the organization um Kirsty Kennedy 
what would what are your hopes for the future of this yeah i guess guess a lot of what cat says resonates and i sort of take your flourishing cat and raise it to liberating as well wow wow. (laughs) (laughs) and the world kind of needs that as well you know each of us as individuals needs that but also between us and if we can grow that in the systems the people around us the organizations you know dare i even say the politics you know the the you know we need that planet earth needs that so yeah. i guess kind of trying to question the status quo really maybe our mps need more yoga in their lives <laughs> more empowerment as well because <laughs> yeah. on board with that <laughs> yeah i love that um i recently came across um it's new to me it's not a new thing but um there is a very exciting book that I have on order called Liberation Psychology, which is speaking to what you were just describing there, mm. Kirsty, about bringing in other ways of knowing, other methodologies, other phenomenologies and so on. And um, a bit like what you were describing, Kat, you know, all these different ways of knowing that we can hold space for all of them and maybe look at where we can, you know, what the integrations of those might be. Okay. Uh, last but not least, Kirsty Fleetwood Mead, what are your hopes for the future in this yeah, topic? I definitely resonate with what Kat and Kirsty were both saying for sure. I think for me, just quite simply, I hope it continues to grow. I think there's definitely um, a momentum that's, that's gaining in this type of work, but yeah. I think it is still relatively niche in, in therapy. Um so it'd be amazing to just to know that people are starting to integrate even kind of parts of this um, into their work. And I think for me, the thing that I'm most passionate about in terms of mind-body connection is that it um, generates like people to feel authentically themselves and to really connect to a more meaningful life. And when you just imagine that on a, on a, on a global scale of people feeling more authentically them and connecting to, to meaning and values, well, that can not be a bad thing. Exactly. Yeah, I love that. Okay. So staying with you, Kirsty, um mm-hmm. where can we find you on social media and the Tinternet? Yes. So my website is theyogipsychologist.com and my Instagram is where I'm most active. That's the dot yogi dot psychologist. Awesome. Thank you. Kirsty Kennedy, where can we find you? You can find me at drkirstykennedy.co.uk or you can find me on LinkedIn. Fabulous. And Dr. Kat Baverstock, where can we find you? Find me at drkatherinebaverstock.co.uk, which is my more traditional psychology website. And you can also find me as the goddess psychologist on Facebook and Instagram. (laughs) I love that brand. I love it. (laughs) Uh, Thank you so much for such a rich conversation today to all of our guests. And um, do have a look in the show notes if you want to um, get connected with and stay connected with anyone um, uh, that was speaking today. Thanks so much to all of you. I learned a a whole heap of stuff in in this conversation. I'm actually really looking forward to listening back and going through it again. So um, thanks so much for sharing your expertise and your, um, your insights today. And 
see you all around. See you next time. See you next time on the um, Inspiring Psychologists Breaking Out of or Breaking the Mold. I have to learn my own podcast titles. Inspiring Psychologists Breaking the Mold of Private Practice. We'll see you in the next episode. Bye, everyone. I'd love to hear what you think about the Inspiring Psychologists podcast. So please take a moment to leave a review and give us a rating wherever you listen to podcasts. It makes a massive difference in helping us to reach new audiences. If, like me, you're feeling inspired and moved by the private practice stories in our podcasts, please spread the word across your own networks. And why not encourage your colleagues and friends to listen to the podcast too? To make sure you don't miss out on future episodes, please be sure to subscribe to the Inspiring Psychologist podcast. You can find out more about all my guests from Series 1 at our website, inspiringpsych.com. That's inspiringpsych.com.